All of you on the gutter. One, and lift your everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 812 for the week of monday november 7th 2016 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is cat robinson welcome cat hi i'm super excited to be here and later we'll talk about a super moon (laughs) hey that's my level of joke there and welcome as well, Cassie Tavanini, aka Crackling. Good evening, Sawyer. And yeah, wow, cat steal in the Sawyer show. This could make for an interesting evening. If only Gene were here, I'd ask him for his phone brick. But... <laughs> and a special greeting to all of our listeners in Mentone, Alabama, and California tonight for reasons that you listeners will never know. Thank you, autocorrect. <laughs> It's going to be the three of us tonight, but let's get started with some space news, because that's what we're here about. Take your mind off the election. Keep in mind that this is recorded before the voting day here in the United States, so we don't know the result of the election is yet. So we're hoping the Republic is still intact. (laughs) Either way, I'm sure we can all use this distraction, (laughs) so let's go ahead and get started with it right away. And uh, why not distract ourselves enough by starting off in Russia? with the Soyuz, and the return of three crew members to Earth from the International Space Station. A little bit before Halloween on October 30th, three crew members returned from the International Space Station, returning from Expedition 49 and Expedition 50. The Soyuz MS-01 came back at 11.58 p.m. Eastern Time in the steppes of Kazakhstan. The three crew members on board, Anatoly Ivanishin, Takuya Onishi, and NASA astronaut Kate Rubens, spent about four months aboard the International Space Station, concluding their trip home and also the first ever flight of the entirely digital Soyuz, the MS-01. This comes just after three new crew members arrived to the International Space Station on October 21st after launching two days earlier. On board the Soyuz MS-02, were Sergei Ryshikov, Andrei Borisenko, and NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough. They will make up the Expedition 50 crew, and they were also, in theory, the last ones to try out the two-day arrival to the International Space Station aboard their Soyuz MS-02. As if there wasn't enough Soyuz launches going on, there are currently only three members aboard the International Space Station, and it's typically six people. So that's why... (laughs) Another Soyuz is on its way about a month after the other one. Currently scheduled to arrive at the station on November 19th, shortly after launching that same day, will be the Soyuz MS-03, rounding out the Expedition 50 crew with Oleg Novitsky, European Space Agency astronaut Thomas Pesquet, and NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson. She's had quite a few stays up there, but they will be on their way after launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Cassie and I were totally geeking out over the pictures from the landing, especially watching it land and the parachute just flatten out. Ugh, they were gorgeous. Bill Ingalls, the NASA photographer, really took some gorgeous shots, picture-wise, of, of the Soyuz slumps. And they found it so much higher in the sky than so many of these landings. They found it so much sooner. It was amazing to watch that extent of the landing. So much time. Just truly spectacular. Kind of the opposite of the last landing where we kind of (laughs) lost them in sunrise. (laughs) And if you want something absolutely spectacular, make sure to follow NASA on Snapchat. Bill Ingalls was posting to the NASA Snapchat from inside the helicopter and all the preparations and everything leading up to taking his pictures and you get a behind the scenes process of how we get 
those spectacular photos. So take a look on the NASA website for the photos and be sure to follow NASA on Snapchat to get that behind the scenes stuff. It's spectacular. I gotta say, I can't believe that Peggy Whitson is going back up. It's That's so freaking cool. <laughs> it, it's amazing to watch the longevity of careers in this field. Just so exciting. Oh yeah, at age 56, she's still going strong. I mean, 21, totally. Um, <laughs> She has currently spent 376 days in space before this current upcoming long-duration stay. And she's had a few stays aboard the ISS already. In fact, I believe two of them. Expedition 5 and Expedition 16. Along with a bunch of shuttle flights, and she is just overall an awesome lady. Yeah, not to mention her time as chief of the astronaut corps. I mean, she has done so much on the ground as well as as an astronaut in space. It's just such a remarkable career, and I'm just very proud to see her going up all over again. Yep, almost 40 hours spacewalking over six EVAs. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's unreal. It's impossible to imagine. Mm -hmm. so Especially since... One of her re-entries, I don't know if you guys remember, was one of the famous uh, ballistic re-entries. Oh, yes. Which uh, I That's believe right. they had eight Gs on re-entry. Wow. And yet <laughs> she's still going back up. <laughs> I mean. Still going back up. And, and, and this will be, what, her third long duration? Vision? I believe so. Wow. I mean, that's just incredible. She's already got the most time and space of any woman, I believe. Yeah, according to her NASA bio, the most for any woman at 377, as you said, Sawyer. And I should point out, not just that she's the most experienced female astronaut, she's 29th among all space flyers. Yeah, that I mean, that's remarkable, especially when you consider how huge that list has grown just in the time she has been serving. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Yes. Peggy Whitson, the NASA baller. <laughs> I was thinking of another term, but I like to keep it clean. So. <laughs> but yes, uh, again, we will be keeping an eye out on that launch, which again, that is scheduled for November 17th, 2016, arriving a few days later. And oh yeah, after Expedition 50 ends, she'll be commanding Expedition 51 too. So we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. Also, just as a funny thing is, how crazy, Expedition 5 and now Expedition 50. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> it's fake. It's perfect. There you go. We now will stay away from the United States. You're welcome. <laughs> and we'll slide over just a little bit from Russia over to China. Now, we talked last time about China launching its astronauts to the Tiangong 2 space station. But China had another successful launch on this past Thursday, November 3rd, 2016, of a brand new rocket. The crew launched aboard the Long March 2F. This was the Long March 5. Sounds a little bit like Saturn V or Atlas V, but it's actually <laughs> comparable to the Delta IV Heavy. That's right, China now has a heavy lift vehicle. It successfully lifted off from the brand new Wenchang Satellite Launch Center on the island province of Hainan. After multiple delays, apparently, just coming out recently, that there were a bunch of problems with it, including a suspending of the launch with the countdown at less than 60 seconds to go. But it did successfully go at the end of the launch window at 20.43 local time and was declared successful. Delivered a test satellite into space, the Xijian-17 payload, which was an experimental satellite put into geostationary transfer orbit. China is saying that this will eventually be used to help them work on building a larger space station comparable to the International Space Station, as well as for their future goals of venturing onto the moon and Mars. So China's entering the heavy lift game now. They sure are. And... My favorite thing about this, well, I like all rockets, so I'm all for everyone building rockets, is if you've seen the video for this launch, is China just knows how to put, you know, they always put more cameras than you would think you would possibly need on a rocket, but I love it. When they went to the moon with their, with their lander, 
there were so many cameras and I remember just watching that like, hello, pretty space things. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they did it with this rocket and I was like, hello, rocket. (laughs) Hello, Moto. Yes. But yeah, even after I sent you the video of this, your first comment was, look at all the camera angles. (laughs) It was, it was. I was like, hi, look. (laughs) Yes, hello, Rocket. There you go. There's the episode title. (laughs) Hello, Rocket. (laughs) But yes, uh, it was a nail-biting countdown. If you get a chance to watch the video, it is spectacularly loud and spectacularly bright and, well, just spectacular for that matter. So... A huge congratulations to China on entering the heavy lift game. If you like big fat rocket launches, you'll love this one. (laughs) So once again, a huge congratulations to China. And now they are up in the league with ULA of their Delta Four Heavy and soon to be SpaceX and NASA with the Falcon 9 Heavy and the SLS. But until then, it's China and the Delta Four Heavy with those heavy lift vehicles. Congratulations, China. So now it's time to go back to the United States. Time to go home to California first. We are going to head out to Vandenberg Air Force Base for the launch of World View 4, which is one of the rare commercial launches out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. World View 4 was originally scheduled to launch back on September 16th of 2016, but was delayed due to a leak of a hydrogen line. So the next launch attempt, scheduled for later that week, then added a delay due to a wildfire that threatened the launch site, which is Space Launch Complex 3E at Vandenberg Air Force Base. So that then pushed the launch to no earlier than November 11th. Originally, it was going to be even sooner, but the launch was delayed again. (laughs) This time, it was due to a problem, apparently, with the Atlas V Common Core booster. According to the official statement from United Launch Alliance, the postponement was caused by a minor booster issue on the Atlas V discovered on the Worldview 4 mission scheduled to launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base. The team is actively working towards a resolution. This is the Atlas V 401 variant, which means four meter fairing, no solid rocket boosters, and one second stage engine. So that is now hopefully scheduled to go on November 11th. It has a launch window from 1.30 p.m. to 1.46 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 18.30 to 18.46 GMT or 10.30 a.m. local time in California. Not only does this impact the Worldview 4 launch, this also impacts the following Atlas V launch, which is the GOES-R launch currently scheduled out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. That launch had also been postponed. It was originally set to happen earlier this year, but was delayed due to Hurricane Matthew passing really close to the Florida Space Coast. Since then, now they are checking that same booster issue on the common core of the Atlas V in Cape Canaveral. This is an Atlas V 541 variant, which means a 5-meter fairing, four solid rocket boosters, and one second-stage engine. This will add another satellite to NOAA's current fleet of GOES spacecraft already making observations. This is GOES-R, and that launch is now currently scheduled for no earlier than November 19th. So we will certainly be keeping an eye on that, especially since I will be down there once again at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station covering the launch of NOAA's GOES-R rocket in cooperation with the Goddard Space Flight Center. So... We'll keep an eye on that launch, but go Atlas, and let's hope these all get off the ground soon. Yes, let's. Speaking of the Atlas V, the Atlas V has another payload that it will be carrying up into space. It's one that it's carried before, but it doesn't usually carry. Yeah. This involves the Cygnus resupply vehicle. And don't forget to check in on the week of November 21st for episode 813 with an inside look at the launch of the OA-5 mission with thoughts and all of the inside looks from our very own Gene Bakulka who was there at the launch. For now though, launching aboard an Atlas V next year. What do you guys think about the next Cygnus going back to Cape Canaveral? I love Atlas. I really do. I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting that... As Charlie Bolden was mentioning when Cassie and I were at IAC, 
that our commercial space industry is robust enough that we have launch redundancies. And NASA asked Orbital ATK if they could deliver the their next contractual commercial cargo launch on a larger vehicle so that they could have a larger payload sent up. And thanks to sort of the robustness of our program, we were able to do that, or they were able to do that, rather. But what do you think of the fact that here we are, they just had a successful launch of the Antares, everything looked great, and now NASA's saying, yeah, but we could actually get more stuff when you launch it on the Atlas, so can you go back to that? <laughs> what does that mean for Orbital ATK and their Antares? I don't think it was a reflection so much on Orbital ATK and Antares as it was SpaceX's launch schedule. So I think that once we have two providers back in the game, that ATK will be back to its Antares rocket now that it had a successful return to flight. And I think it actually speaks to the forethought of Orbital ATK that they made this something they can do. Because it's not only something they can do when they are having problems. It's something that they can do proactively to provide much greater range of mm-hmm. launch And services. to meet the needs of the customers. And exactly. And that's, if you're going to have a commercial business, that's exactly what you need to be doing is meeting the needs of your customers, even when they're outside of your normal, typical, original plan, such as to launch this on Antares. The thing is, they can launch it on Antares and have it be one scenario, or they can be agile and they can move. And That's one of the advantages of this sort of business is that in the commercial sector, you have to be a bit more agile. And so that should be baked into how you do business. And so I applaud them for thinking ahead. I couldn't agree more. How smart of them to have a vehicle that can be mated with more than one launch vehicle. Exactly. I mean, it's spectacular. And I'm so glad that they're able to do that. Especially, like you said, because a lot of that is the fact that we're currently down to one commercial resupply provider after the SpaceX failure. Which leads us to our next story, and that is an update on that anomaly. I should say it's not a failure, it is an anomaly. Which happened, if you recall, back on September 1st when they were loading up fuel for a test fire for the Amos 6 mission. That was scheduled to launch a few days later, but after the anomaly... That was obviously postponed, and a Falcon 9 has not launched since. On on an update posted to the SpaceX website on October 28th, they announced that they are getting closer to finding the root cause. They can't say exactly that they have found the cause yet, but it has narrowed down even more to one of the three composite overwrapped pressure vessels inside the liquid oxygen tank. They have said that in testing at their SpaceX facility in Texas, They have been able to recreate a failure of that exact pressure vessel only through helium loading conditions. Now, if you recall, SpaceX has had some delays in the past due to temperatures of their liquid oxygen and their liquid helium loading. This continues to be a problem, apparently, as they were able to, just by adjusting the temperature and the pressure, cause the conditions to change. So SpaceX has said they're focusing on two areas, finding the exact root cause, and developing improved helium loading conditions that allow SpaceX to reliably load up the Falcon 9. They are also saying that they are expecting to return to launch still before the end of the year, with the recent rumor mill saying sometime in mid-December for a return to flight for Falcon (laughs) 9. That's pretty quick. Yes, Yes, it is. Uh, In fact, Elon Musk went on, I believe it was CNBC, and gave an interview on Friday um, and said that The problem was a really surprising problem that's never been encountered before in the history of rocketry, which I found really amusing just in its phrasing because sort of the issue in which they've narrowed down this anomaly to with their their fuel issues is something that has been a concern for some people within the industry for some time. And in fact, it has been a concern because of, as you alluded to, Sawyer, The way that SpaceX has to fuel its rockets means that fueling would have to take place on a future crewed flight while the astronauts are on board, which there are some concerns with that. Um, As you can see, incidents can happen during fueling. 
Elon Musk has said that even if that were to happen, the Dragon abort system would safely evacuate the crew. But still, I mean, it does bring up some questions that I think have to be answered. Yeah, I mean, Elon has said before that if there had been an abort system installed on this and there were people on board, he believes they all would have survived. And I honestly don't doubt that because it was pretty quick, but it would have given him enough time to get out of there, in my personal opinion. Again, we don't know that for certain because there was not one on board. And unfortunately, the payload was lost in that. But that is a huge concern. And NASA has straight out said, yeah, we're worried about when you put crew on, just fueling it up with them on board. Yes, it's kind of what happened with the shuttle, but the solid rocket boosters came fully fueled, and it was more of just fuel tank topping off when all the astronauts were on board of the giant orange external fuel tank with the space shuttle. It wasn't so much filling up the rocket entirely. But it will certainly be interesting to see what they decide to do with that, and most importantly, if they are able to return to flight before the end of the year. The next question is going to be, if they do return to flight before the end of the year, from where? Will it be from Vandenberg? Will it be from Cape Canaveral? If from Cape Canaveral, will it be from Space Launch Complex 40 or Launch Pad 39A, home to the moon launches and a whole bunch of shuttle launches? I mean, I think that right now there's just, there's a lot of questions and uncertainties surrounding SpaceX. I think that December is still optimistic. I mean, if they do, fantastic. I mean, that's admirable to return to flight just a few months after a major mishap, like the Amos 6 anomaly. But I'm, I'm skeptical. I just don't, I don't see it happening. But hey, it's always pleasant to be surprised in a good way when it comes to space and rockets. I'm sure there are people working 40, 50, 60 hours a week on this problem over at SpaceX to try and get this going. I don't doubt that in the least. But I would be surprised if they get it back that quickly. And the other thing I would be surprised at is if you're a satellite provider, you're going, hang on a sec. It's only been two or three months. At the end of October, you said we're narrowing down the cause, but we haven't found the exact cause yet. And yet we're still going to launch by the end of the year. If you're a satellite provider, do you still trust SpaceX? You know, I don't I wouldn't want to be next. <laughs> <sighs> I wouldn't. I mean, not unless they, you know, we'll we'll see what shakes out across the next couple of weeks. But if they don't have definitive answers, I they, I'd be nervous. I was going over all of my notes and everything before the show tonight that I don't want to be the first astronaut on top of a SpaceX rocket. And I mean, that's really that's kind of sort of. And we've had this conversation for a long time on the show about maybe some culture issues within SpaceX. And I truly do wish them all the best. I want them to be really successful. But... And I have incredible respect for everybody I've ever encountered who works there, too. It's nothing against any of them. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said that better. But I just... To me, it's like they're already... They're so focused on the return to flight that... Are we focused on, let's make sure something like this doesn't happen again? Yes, they need to be saying, like, yes, we're definitely going to return to flight, but promising dates for return to flight, to me, that doesn't seem as important. And I'm right there with Cassie and, and you, Sawyer. You're like, as a satellite, if I have a satellite, am I going to put that on top of a rocket? Who's going to be first? And, you know, if I was actually looking at launch providers right now, and there are starting to be a multitude... Of course, certain ones are better at doing certain things or have more opportunity for doing certain things. But if I was looking around and shopping right now, I would be in a wait and see pattern in general. So right now, I don't know. I think I'd be aiming towards making sure that I have the safest launch company around because it's a little sketchy right now. I mean, everyone... You know, it's a young industry. It's a young industry. It's naturally going to be like that to some extent. So I'm not saying anything against the entire industry or anything like that. But I would be a little nervous and I would want to wait and see a little bit before I put my money down. There's some new rockets that are coming up from from, I mean, the Mm -hmm. Falcon 9 Heavy. I mean, it's not exactly a a new rocket, but it's going to be a new test. Um, using, you know, existing SpaceX technology. You know, Antares just flew its return to flight with a new configuration. ULA is working on the Vulcan rocket. NASA has a space launch system. I mean, there's a lot of new rockets and 
that are going to be coming into use and into service soon. And I mean, that's very exciting, but I think we also have to sort of be realistic that, hey, when you test rockets, <laughs> we have a lot of new rockets that are coming up to be tested. You know, this is probably going to happen again. Even amongst the longer term rockets, people are trying new technology and there's there's going to be some problems before every before we have a bunch of dependable rockets. It's kind mm -hmm. of inevitable. There's going to be some issues. So it does come down to culture and how companies exactly. handle their if problems. If you have a satellite or you have a launch that you need to purchase a, a launch vehicle, whether it's a reusable launch vehicle or expendable launch vehicle, you have to think of these things like what am I at what point do I balance risk? You know, how much risk is acceptable risk and how much savings do I want versus how much do I want my payload to get to orbit? So I mean it's 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 a lot to balance. I'm cautiously optimistic about all of it. I think that ultimately there these companies are gonna discover it's more expensive to have failures and to cut certain corners. And I think they're just, I think in a lot of ways, they're feeling their way through that. What What's necessary? What can mm -hmm. be sped up? What can be done differently? And the truth is, it's a lot of experimentation. And that's one of the reasons that there are no humans on top of these yet. <laughs> and it'd be fantastic to have them back in flight but by the end of the year. That'd be, be fantastic. I'd love, love to, to see that. Too, but I'm not yeah. holding my breath. I just hope that it's because they truly do feel like they've gotten to the root of the problem and they know how to change their procedures to make it a little bit safer. You do learn more from mm -hmm. failure than success and anomalies than everything running smoothly. So as long as they take this and they learn from it and they do make the adjustments and they do their best, then it will be successful. But they have to be mm -hmm. careful not to get too associated with these things. Exactly. So now we are going to head into something that's been flying and has set its third world record. And huge props to the Goddard Space Flight Center for building amazing spacecraft. I have to say I interned there for one summer. I love the people there. I love the work they're doing. And one of the spacecraft I got to see in the clean room was the MMS, the Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission, which was actually a fleet of satellites that launched and deployed together. Four of them in total. They had set previously the record for the closest flying formation between several spacecraft, with only four and a half miles, or about seven and a quarter kilometers, between the four of them. They also had set the fastest traveling craft to use a GPS receiver traveling at 22,000 miles per hour, or about 35,400 kilometers an hour, when the mission is at its closest point to Earth. It has now set a third record by using GPS navigation at the highest altitude at 43,500 miles, or 70,000 kilometers, above the Earth. The satellites use GPS to help stay in formation as they survey the Earth's magnetic fields, and at 70,000 kilometers up, they're using GPS just like you would use on your phone to get navigation. On Google Maps or Apple Maps, well, they've got MMS Maps. So, huge shout out to the Goddard Space Flight Center for and the MMS team for setting another record, as well as, you know, studying the Earth's magnetosphere and doing spectacular science. That is just absolutely astounding. I've been reading a lot about GPS. My longtime partner is getting ready to go on a trip to Western Sahara and is taking a satellite device with him that, of course, is going to use GPS. And I've been actually been learning a lot more about GPS. The idea that you can actually use it up there and make that map is absolutely mind-blowing. It's so cool. And they're keeping in line with each other because all the spacecraft together are able to come up with a unique 3D view of the Earth's magnetic field and to look at things such as solar flares Wonderful. and auroras all happening in the Earth's atmosphere. So, I mean, it's a spectacular mission already getting that 3D mapping and keeping those spacecraft close to each other using GPS at high speeds and high altitudes. So, 
It's so cool. Satellites using satellites. That's that's actually what I'm loving about this. <laughs> it's literally a satellite constellation using a satellite constellation to provide us with Earth science. Amazing. I never thought this of is, it that way. This is, this is NASA using the military to provide more information about our own planet that we really need to know and understand. That is an incredible piece of cooperation and utilization of resources right there. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work, people. There's a reason for all of this. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. And I totally forgot GPS, global positioning satellites, helping to position other satellites. Yep. Science. <laughs> science. Welcome to 2016, where our presidential election is a mess, but our science is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking with the amazing team at the Goddard Space Flight Center, Kat, you actually got to talk to a scientist at Goddard about something cool that's coming up in just, actually, pretty much the week after this episode comes out, right? Something cool we can all actually, watch, too. something cool coming out this week, so you'll have to look out for it as soon as you listen to the episode. So I got to talk with uh, Dr. Noah Petro, who is at NASA Goddard, and he is the deputy project scientist for the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Mission, so LRO. And we're really hoping we get to have him back on the show with some exciting things that are coming up soon with LRO. But to talk about the moon and the supermoon that is coming up on November 14th, early that morning. So uh, with no further ado, please help me welcome Noah to the show. To start off with, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with NASA? Sure. It's sort of, you know, working for NASA is kind of in my, my DNA. My, my dad was an engineer on the Apollo program in the early uh, 1960s. He built parts for the lunar module and for the uh, portable life support system for the astronauts, the backpack. And so uh, as a kid growing up, I was always very interested in space exploration and sort of all things NASA. And then later in life, in, in high school, I was introduced to geology, to earth science, and I got really, really hooked on geology, on being outdoors and sort of using rocks on the earth to tell a story of, of how the, uh, the crust of the earth changed over you know, millions and billions of years. And then in college, I had a professor who, who rightly said, well, no, you're interested in space and lunar exploration. You're interested in <laughs> geology. You know you can do the geology of the planets. You can study planetary Scientist, and so you know, from that moment on, I was really hooked on uh, uh, you know planetary science, on lunar science particularly, and have been following that ever since. So you know, I just love studying the moon. I think we have a lot to learn in studying the moon, and uh, love thinking about uh, how the moon influences us here on Earth. I love that story. It's really amazing how influential mentors or teachers you have. In fact, just completely random, my own study, and I'm doing space policy for my PhD, was because a professor, my advisor, said, every time you study science communication, it's always something to do with the space program. Why are you not just studying space policy? And I was like, that's a good question. Why am I not just studying space policy? <laughs> yeah, no, and that, I mean, I've been very fortunate to have great teachers, mentors who have kind of you know, pushed me along in my, in my career path. You know, between my parents, you know, my high school or science teachers who I still communicate with, still talk to, keep in touch with, they uh, they are always eager to hear what we're doing here at NASA. Then to my college professor who is very influential, my graduate advisor who is you know hugely influential in my life. It's a it's when you're lucky enough to have the right people pointing you in the right direction, it makes the ride that much more enjoyable. It really does. So we asked you on the show today to talk a little bit about the supermoon. So will you tell for our listeners, what is the supermoon and when can we see the next one? Yeah. Okay. So the supermoon and, you know, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, supermoons every month, the supermoon <laughs> in October, the, the supermoon is becoming as ubiquitous as presidential debates and it's, you know, it's happening all the time. But, but when, and ultimately, and it's very important to understand, you know, astronomers, the, the supermoon is not a fireworks show. There's not a – if you don't look at the moon regularly, you wouldn't even notice that there's anything different about the moon on November 14th. But the supermoon is – the de definition that we kind of, I don't know, look at as being the most accurate 
way to think about it is the supermoon is the closest full moon over the course of the, the cycle of the lunar orbit. Okay, so you have to have two things line up nearly simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You have to have a full moon occur during perigee, the closest path in the moon's orbit around the Earth. So because the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a perfect circle, it gets closer in its orbit sometimes and further away. That's observable. If you look at the, the closest full moon and the most distant full moon in the course of a year, there is a, a size difference, about 14% mm-hmm. uh, difference in the apparent size of the moon. So we get a, a supermoon, the perigee moon, the closest full moon happens once every 14 months. And so the next supermoon is actually going to be January 2nd of 2018. So a nice post-New Year's celebration uh, <laughs> for us uh, in 2018. But the supermoon that's going to occur on November 14th will actually be the closest full moon since 1948, since January of 1948. So this will be a a really super, super moon, um, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, and the next time the moon will be this close uh, in its path around the Earth will be in November of 2034. The moon will be about 55 kilometers closer to the Earth in November of 2034 than it will be uh, on November 14th. So, you know, we're, we're talking of, you know, tens of kilometers closer, but, you know, we know the, the orbit of the moon very well and we know how far the moon is to the earth uh, very well. So let's celebrate every kilometer the moon is uh, closer to the earth. Fantastic. And then do the supermoons have any effect on earth? Well, I, I've always used the somewhat glib line that the only effect that, that the supermoon will have on, on us on earth is that the next morning people will wake up with a stiff neck from spending the night looking up at the moon. <laughs> um, I don't know that that necessarily is even true, but it has been shown that there is a slight and subtle difference on tides caused mm-hmm. by supermoon, you'll get higher high tides from a supermoon. There are some very subtle atmospheric effects that can come from a, a, from a full moon from the supermoon. But these are all things that may not necessarily influence you or myself. Uh, again, if you're not really looking for this, you won't notice it at all. Mm-hmm. So you know the, the moon does influence the Earth just as much as the Earth influences the moon. You know, the moon causes earth tides. Earth causes very subtle tides on the earth by deforming the moon very slightly. Mm-hmm. So there are, you know, there's this interplay between the earth and the moon. The supermoon just being by mean by being that much closer, although, again, we're not talking about thousands of kilometers closer than the next supermoon. These are, you know, tens of kilometers, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers. So, you know, those differences are, are very, very minor. Well, thank you for that information. Now, I also want to ask, Noah, what is some other research that NASA is currently doing surrounding and involving the moon? Yeah, so one of the, the, the sort of the things that keeps me most active here at work is we have uh, a mission orbiting the moon right now, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, LRO. LRO has been at the moon since um, 2009, so we've been at the moon now for over seven years. And in that time, the data from LRO um, has shown us that the moon is, is a very dynamic place, uh, you know, it's moon doesn't have an atmosphere, so we're not talking about, you know, weather changes, the dynamic level of, of the Earth or even Mars. But we're able now with repeated imaging of the lunar surface by the camera on LRO to observe new impact craters that have formed in the last seven years on the surface. And that gives us a really unique and interesting perspective into how the surface of the moon changes very gradually, but over over several thousands and, and, and millions of years. And so what we've seen, for instance, is that the moon and surface perhaps is reworked. The, the very uppermost portion of the lunar surface is reworked much more quickly than, than models had predicted before LRO. And so the, the data from LRO is showing us surfaces changing. We're finding evidence for water at the surface of the moon and near the surface of the moon, moon as well. So you know, the, the current research in the, into the, the moon is really showing us that our pre-LRO, our preconceived notions of what the moon was like may be wrong. And so we're, we're kind of going back to the, not necessarily to the drawing board, but we're revising a lot of our um, long-held paradigms, models for how we think the moon works, and, and revising that. So that's a very interesting time. That's happening in real time. Every month, it seems that we've found something that challenges our, our, our notions of what we thought about how the moon worked. And so you know, lunar science is very hot and very active right now. That sounds really exciting. And what is it that you are most excited about for the moon in the future? 
my area of interest is in understanding the composition of the lunar surface and how we can use the composition to understand how the moon evolved. So, you know, you look at the lunar surface and it's pockmarked by impact craters, some of which we now know are very young, you know, formed within the last seven years. Uh, and we have impact craters that are four billion years old. And so I'm interested in understanding the, the ages of features on the lunar surface, as well as how we can use the moon to better understand how planets work. Um, because the moon is in very close proximity to the Earth, the impacts that are occurring on the moon today are certainly happening uh, you know, to the Earth as well and, and things in, in near-Earth orbit. So I'm always very interested in understanding how we can use the moon to tell us more about how all planets work, but specifically how the Earth has evolved, especially how the Earth was evolving very, very early in its history. We have this wonderfully dynamic planet here on the Earth where the continental crust is constantly being recycled, the oceanic crust is being recycled. So we have a relatively young surface on our planet, but the moon surface contains areas that are very, very old. And so those gives us glimpses into what was happening four and a half billion years ago. And so I'm, I'm most interested in using what we know about the moon and applying it to what must have happened on the Earth in its early history. Wow. Well, we will really look forward to future research coming from you and from all of NASA on, on the moon. And thank you so much for coming on our show to talk about the supermoon and the LORO. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we were so excited to be able to have Noah on the show to talk about the moon, the supermoon, and some of the other work that's going on. And hopefully we will be able to have him back to talk about LRO in a later show. So we were just really excited to get that interview. And don't forget to uh, look out for the supermoon early in the morning on November 14th. Certainly. And a thank you to the Goddard Space Flight Center for helping us get that interview set up. And thank you, Kat, for doing that interview. It was spectacular. No problem. It was my pleasure. It really, it was a great conversation and we look forward to doing some more interviews with not only Noah, but some other people at NASA Goddard in the future. Oh, yes. Good stuff coming up. So here are two words that I thought would never go together. Scaparelli success? That's right. According to the European Space Agency, the entry descent lander portion of their first ExoMars test, they're calling it a success despite having pictures, now in color, of it crashing into the surface, dropping from 2 to 4 kilometers in altitude, crashing into the ground at over 300 kilometers per hour. The pictures show three items in it, one of them being heat shield, one of them being a parachute, and one of them being a giant crater. <laughs> sure. They have confirmed that it is not a meteorite impact, that it is indeed the crater. It's about 15 by 40 meters or so. So it's pretty big. The craft of about 300 kilograms would make an impact about that size. However, they're saying that this was, for the most part, a success. Maybe not that it successfully landed, but that the telemetry that they received is something that they can certainly use. Their goal was to help test the landing and entry system and to test all of their landing procedures. All the procedures worked well for the most part, and it was just a matter of minor details, such as why the engines cut out early and why the parachute cut away slightly early. They're minor issues, but they are pointing to the successes of the targeting module, as well as the separation from the orbiter, the hypersonic atmospheric entry phase, and the parachute deployment itself, as well as beginning to slow the module down. So that they are considering a success. Maybe not the landing itself, but everything else that they found and the information that they used, they say will be extremely helpful as they prepare for their 2020 lander. You know, this is exactly why I always say I hate the line, failure is not an option, because it's taken out of context and applied to space far too frequently, and sometimes failures, as we said earlier in this episode, are exactly how you learn stuff. They did learn that they've learned to do more stuff right, and that's why they're calling this a success. They will learn more as they learn more about why the failures happened. And so it's all about making incremental progress at something they're working really hard to do. Yeah, and we definitely shouldn't discount also that they successfully had orbital insertion for the trace gas orbiter, which is really also a difficult thing to do, to do successful orbital insertions at Mars. So that was also a great thing. But I, I agree. I mean, 
certainly there are certain connotations that we attach to the word success that we think, well, it crashed, so it's not successful. And of course, the whole time in my head, I'm thinking, I don't know if any of you remember the um, parody Sky Crane Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just imagining like the Sky Crane comments that would uh, come out of this. But I mean, they learned a lot. And as long as they take the lessons learned and apply this to their, when they send their life detecting rover, that part of the mission, and they successfully land, Issa successfully lands its rover on Mars, then yes, this will have been a resounding success. If they're unable to apply lessons learned, then I take some um, issue with the word. But as for now, you know, if their goal was that this was a test and they needed to learn certain things about how to land on Mars with Issa's landing system, then, then I'm okay with them using the word success. And the truth is, you know, crashing things on Mars is a time-honored tradition of space <laughs> exploration. <laughs> I, think, yeah, I think my comment... Even has done it once. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, you know. I think my comment after this is like, maybe what we need to study about Mars is whether or not spacecraft are part of its balanced diet. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yes, uh, I should point out keep, at this point, keeps... in terms of landers... The only country to have ever successfully landed a spacecraft on Mars is the United States, and they are seven for eight. In terms of orbiters, for completely successful missions, the Soviet Union had a few that were mostly successful, but in terms of complete successes, there are three countries. NASA, the European Space Agency, so I guess agencies, and India currently has their spacecraft, the ISRO, orbiting around Mars. So that's impressive nonetheless that here they are, being one of only three countries to have currently operational spacecraft in orbit around Mars. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we have to remember sometimes, too, with ESA, they do some incredible, truly landmark missions. We've all followed Rosetta anxiously until recently. We've been following many of their missions. And they have a teensy budget. They have a lot of complications that as Americans we struggle to understand because they have 22 member states <laughs> and so they have to deal with the politics we have enough trouble dealing with the politics of one nation imagine dealing with 22 <laughs> <laughs> when you're making space decisions like seriously yeah. imagine that and so they and they're younger really and they have less experience plans. and we have been throwing money into doing this stuff for so long and at such higher levels and what they did, what they are doing, the experiments that they're doing, they are absolutely incredible when you look at how little they have to work with. Yeah. Absolutely mind-bending. I, I really I really couldn't agree more. Uh, ESA is, is really exciting. And not only are they doing incredible things with small budgets, but they're so open about it. They're happy to yeah. have you come and find out what they're doing they want you to know what's going on and they're all excited and it, it's really it's great you know I mean Cassie Cassie will tell you you know you go to IAC and you talk to people who, <laughs> who are working with ESA or any of its member agencies and it's just they're excited they 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 have the bug and I really think ESA is going to do some really phenomenal things in space there, there's a level of enthusiasm throughout the entire agency that I have never seen in any governmental program, anytime, anywhere, any governmental employees. It, it is. It's cat's cat nailed it. And that's the thing is we were talking about also about culture after failures. I mean, we're calling this a success, but after anomalies and incidents, their culture is phenomenal with this stuff. I have nothing but the greatest faith that they are going to take every bit of data that they can put together from this incident and they are going to figure out how to do it better. That's what they're going to do. There's there's no lack of faith in that in this instance, mm -hmm. like I might have with some commercial companies. ESA is there there is a certain purity to what they do where I just know they're not just going to analyze this. They're going to have every type of employee they have analyze this to see if they can find something new and different that somebody else missed. Mm -hmm. So you have to take steps in order to get success. We were damn lucky, too. Like, that Sky Crane 
We were lucky <laughs> while we worked. The fact that we could not possibly test all of the systems, yeah. all of them, and in conjunction, we were really lucky. And we can never lose sight of that fact. No, I when agree. you're I trying to do a, something new. This is new. A, perfect, a perfect example of, of an argument that we make often on this show that, hey, the moon's a great test bed. We can get to it a lot quicker. <laughs> like, we should test some, like, entry and landing systems as best as we can on the moon before we're headed off to Mars with people. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, like, hey, we have a new crater on Mars. Isn't it great that that crater was just made by electronics? <laughs> <laughs> it's a gorgeous yeah. picture if you haven't seen it. It's true. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a beautiful picture, but hey, we know that Mars eats spacecraft, we're not sure how it feels about people yet. <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't them. Yeah, Ho- hopefully it doesn't have too much desire for us. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's there's something kind of ironic and funny that if you look at the name of this particular lander, the same guy who accidentally caused humans to think that there were canals and therefore civilization on Mars now has... The spacecraft named after that made it through like all but the last phase of landing. And it's sort of like how his discoveries made it through all but the last phase of people understanding them. (laughs) (laughs) It seems kind of this like this weirdly appropriate thing. But it also makes me a little extra sad, perhaps, about this lander not making it. You know, I, I have a great fondness for Italy and especially their part in astronomy and space exploration of all kinds. And Schiaparelli, the inventiveness that <laughs> that a miscommunication created is something that I think people got really excited about exploring space totally by accident. And so I don't know, there's this this theme of these of serendipity to the name and I'm hoping that there will be serendipity in this mission and that we learn so many things, sort of like how Mars has provided serendipity before with the way that spirit getting stuck led to some science that wouldn't have been done otherwise. There's a certain serendipity to Mars and you have to go with that. But it also ma- it does make me really sad that one of my favorite all-time astronomers had that the spacecraft named after him just happened to be the one that didn't quite make it to the end of its mission. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that's what happens when you have the only planet that we know of entirely inhabited by robots. <laughs> Don't forget that. Mars is the only planet that we know of currently inhabited only by robots. That is strangely beautiful and kind of creepy all at the same time. I, and I think that's it. the absolute perfect place then to end <laughs> this episode. And with that, I'd like to thank all of you, hopefully non-robots, for joining me. Thank you for joining us, Kat Robson. It was my pleasure to be here and to laugh with you. It was the uh, perfect break from the election, and it's always wonderful to be with my Talking Space crew. Always great to be with you guys, and thanks as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini. Thank you so much, Sawyer. There's been so much going on. It was good to get a little bit caught up after all our special episodes. And of course, our next one will be another special episode. So we've been working really hard to try and bring more, better content, new things. And it's kind of exciting to just catch up a little bit with the general news and realize there is a heck of a lot going on in space right now and so much to talk about. And we didn't even get to cover everything. These were just not even close. That we selected. <laughs> <laughs> but we thank you so much for joining us, and we thank you for listening. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>